On today's episode, we talk to Brian Adams from Excelsior Capital. He has raised over $350 million AUM to date. Brian is going to talk to us today about what he believes the new normal for the office space is going to be and why it's not what you think. How companies like Amazon and other powerhouses are now adapting to this new model and how you can capitalize on investing in the office sector as well. Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Robert Show. This, this is The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. Hello, Brian. Welcome to the show. Let's get rolling by giving us a brief background about your investing experience and what assets you are in today. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate you having me. So I'm a New York guy that married a Nashville girl. I've been in town 15 years. I started the company 10 years ago with my partner. And to date, we have raised um, a series of funds as well as some direct co-investment syndication platforms. And we run about two and a half million square feet. Probably 99% of that is multi-tenant office properties across 12 markets, all growth secondary markets across the Southeast and the Midwest. Gross portfolio value is probably right around 350 million. And today we purely focus on raising capital in a syndication model where deal by deal, we talk to individuals and family offices, independent RIAs and boutique wealth management firms um, to raise capital on a deal by deal basis. And we're really focused on three things, capital preservation, solving for a current yield somewhere in that 8% annualized cash on cash range, and then really accelerating and accentuating the benefits that come through direct real estate ownership for taxable investors. So what, what made you choose office? Yeah. So we like to think of things on a risk adjusted basis. So when we look at the world of, of, and we'll maybe go pre COVID for purposes of this uh, answer, But when you look at all the food groups that you could participate in across the commercial real estate spectrum, I personally think you need to be solving for somewhere in that eight to 10% cash on cash yield range in order to justify the illiquidity premium, as well as the risk you're taking by doing a, a private direct deal with a management team. And so when you're trying to do that without taking too much risk or leverage, office is, is really one of the few places where you can still find decent yield, good cap rates, but solid product, right? If you go out on multifamily or increasingly uh, distribution, um, workforce housing, um, RV, uh, even some of the data center cell tower, really insulated uh, product types, cap rates are, are terrible. And so it's really hard to find that kind of yield component. And when I talked to a lot of the investors that were early on with our company, Many of them already had exposure in the triple net space and the multifamily space. And for whatever reason, office, the only options they had in front of them were to do a Blackstone or a KKR fund to fund type of vehicle or a one-off deal from their friend uh, through the golf course or their club, et cetera. There wasn't really a middle market institutional sized or style asset manager bringing them direct deals in the office um, space. And so we were trying to just fill that void and we saw an opportunity there in an inefficient market. So now with COVID, you know, with what's going on in the marketplace, are, is your business plan to continue only with office? Yeah. So obviously COVID um, has impacted our business uh, to some extent. I would say that on the spectrum, you've got obviously hospitality, travel, leisure, retail is really feeling a lot of pain. 
office is probably somewhere in the middle. And then you've got really insulated product type on the other end, self storage, et cetera. Um, we have closed a deal uh, post COVID. We uh, acquired a property in Kansas city in June and we have three LOIs out right now. And so our fundamental investment thesis that suburban submarkets in growth secondary markets will continue to rise has not changed at all. In fact, COVID has reinforced what we've seen as this huge demographic shift of millennials leaving very tax unfriendly and business inefficient marketplaces, most notably on the coasts like New York and California, et cetera. We see that shift only continuing. But when we look at it on a deal by deal basis, obviously our, our underwriting, we've had to sharpen our pencils a little bit and really dig into what that rent roll looks like. And there's clearly been a flight to uh, quality, right? So before we always took vintage risk very seriously, we'd like to see new products somewhere in the 2000s. But I think given what we're doing or given where infrastructure is moving in the office world, um, that's only going to be heightened with air purification systems, um, a tendency to go to buildings that don't have, you know, uh, high structures where you need to use the elevator necessarily. Those are all things we're taking into consideration. And then obviously the use of the, of the building by the tenants themselves, trying to stay away from travel, hospitality, leisure, energy, and more focused on um, what we would see as COVID resilient um, or COVID resistant uses. And so we've started skewing a bit more towards the uh, flex office, almost industrial type use, and then a lot of um, medical arts uses. Right now we're doing a deal in Kansas City where it has the majority of the tenant bases in-person medical use. And we feel like, you know, COVID will not impact that. So when it comes to the underwriting, how are you guys, you know, protecting the, you know, the downside over the next 24 months? And how are you coming to a, a price that makes sense for all investors and that where everyone's all comfortable? Yeah. Pricing discovery has been a big question we've gotten from our investors, right? Is there going to be a COVID discount or a premium? Um, and for the most part on these stabilized um, office properties um, in these secondary markets, we have not seen a dramatic change in cap rate. Um, now there haven't been a lot of transactions, so it's a little hard to know, but all the brokers we've talked to and all the owners, ownership groups that we've talked to, maybe you're seeing a 5%, maybe a 10% discount if there is um, some COVID related um, pain being felt on the asset level. But frankly, pricing has been pretty consistent. And I think that's really a function of, of where interest rates are and where the 10 year is going, right? I mean, rates are only going down, yields are going down. And so if anything, I think cap rates might go down a little bit in, in my world, in the office kind of flex use. Um, so we haven't really seen a lot of accommodations from sellers. Um, we are starting to see some deal flow pick back up. Like I said, we are expected to close two deals in Q4, hopefully. Um, so that's kind of been the, the the state of the market in terms of how we're underwriting these. Um, it hasn't changed too dramatically. You know, lenders um, are requiring uh, sometimes a little bit more cash escrow to be held um, on the asset level. And I think the biggest thing for us in terms of how we're underwriting deals is um, the lease renewals and leasing activity, I think for the next 12 to 24, 24 months is going to be subdued. So it's not so much about how we're underwriting our cash flow as it is any asset that has a large amount of near-term role, we're just not touching right now. You know, we want to see a weight average lease term of north of four years 
no near-term role and any of the big tenants we want to see them be you know more than four or five years out and have no recent rent relief requests or underlying issues on their business that's interesting and so you are able to get all that information when you're doing due diligence you know in regards to the uh, previous payment history and so forth yeah i mean obviously there's a big difference between what you can get under loi versus when you're under contract but one of the initial questions that we started screening for is have you had any rent relief requests period um and if you have had a rent relief request have you asked for updated financial statements because oftentimes tenants um, even if they're on a long-term lease they aren't required to send you updated financials um, typically so that is something that we've started putting into our kind of LOIs. Um, and frankly, we've had a little bit of pushback from sellers and brokers, but the lenders are going to require it anyway. So you might as well give it to me because it, if I can't get debt, I can't close the deal. Um, and so there have been some gnashing of teeth over that, but for the most part, we've been able to get that type of information. And if the seller's not willing to give it, that's a red flag for us and we'll walk from the deal. Is there any other important criteria that you've added to the LOI uh, since the beginning of COVID? I mean, those, those are the big ones is, you know, rent relief requests, updated financials, has, have any of your tenants um, applied for PPP funding? And if so, were they granted or denied that PPP funding? Um, those have been the big ones. Um, obviously it's a little bit of a work in progress because things change every 30 days, but those have been the, the large um, pieces that we've added into our initial diligence requests. And with the rise in construction costs and so forth, uh, you know, how do you manage TIs and those costs, uh, you know, in the pro forma? Yeah. So uh, that's been interesting to see, obviously pre COVID during this huge run up that we've had in commercial real estate over the last 10 years, construction costs were rising almost a percent a month. Right. So just, um, the, the cost was outrageous um, and it was really comes down to labor and materials. Um, what I've, we've been seeing, and we're not developers, but the guys that I've been talking to, they've been seeing some deflationary dynamics in their markets where actual construction costs are going down and bids are going down between 10 to 20% depending. We anecdotally have had a property in Kansas City that we had quoted to white box in Q4 and it was really expensive and 96% occupied building. It wasn't necessary to spend that kind of money in our opinion. That GC came back to us and discounted his own cost to 25% um, because he wanted his crews to, to do something to get some work coming into the door. And so we did green light that work. That's just a one-off example. So I, I can't really speak to what's going on in general, but in terms of how we underwrite TILCs, um, you know, we, I think it's important that, the lender has an idea of, of what those cash loops are going to look like um, on their own level. But more importantly, we just take a blanket sweep annually and put it into a TILC reserve account that we control and not the lender controls. So we never want to have to go to the lender and beg for money or good news money to be released. We'd like to have control of that ourselves. So we typically will upfront fund a series of amount, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars of extra uh, cash. And then we'll just do an annual sweep automatically um, as kind of a rainy day fund. So that's how we usually um, work around the TLC issue. That's interesting. And, and what, uh, you know, when it comes to these office buildings, where do you see it like adaptive reuse or, you know, conversions? What are other avenues that developers are going to do with these buildings? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's you're going to have to get creative and, and you're seeing some of that in the news with what's going on with Amazon and Simon Properties in terms of repurposing some of those big box retail spaces to be distribution centers. Um, I could certainly see that happening across retail and hospitality. Um, I'm not sure Office has that problem today. I do think, like I mentioned earlier, some of this older product, call it the 80s, um, 90s Trammel Crow type product is getting a little long in the tooth. And frankly, I could see COVID making a lot of that kind of class C property obsolete and either, you know, scraping the whole site or repurposing it for a different use because I, I can't imagine um, that those properties are going to do well over the next five or 10 years. Um, we haven't seen anything in our space um, to date, although certainly the conversations that we're having with tenants it's all about density, right? So what used to be this trend towards extremely dense, expensive space, call it the WeWork model, where they had almost 75 square feet per user, where a traditional office layout is more like 250 square feet per user. The new inbound requests we're getting on the leasing side into our suburban product, people are very focused on, you know, how many people can I put into the space? Am I able to achieve social distancing? And I think one of the key uh, components that you don't hear a lot about in the news is, because people are moving back to the suburbs, they're all car centric markets. They don't have, um, you know, large mass transit options. You also have to park that density. And that's where parking ratios become really important. And where suburban office, frankly, makes a lot of sense because it still has, you know, really um, robust parking ratios where you can handle that kind of density, call it four to five uh, spots per thousand uh, square feet. I've looked at a few deals over the last year here in the Raleigh market. Uh, you know, I'm not a primary office buyer, but just a few different options came up and it only had maybe one or two per thousand. Typically, what can, you know, an investor do about that? You know, how can they change that product around or use it differently to make up for that lost parking? Yeah, it's a challenge, right? So in a lot of these suburban markets, um, it's all surface parking. And to build structured parking, is ex it's exceedingly expensive and typically not a very good um, ROI. You know, when we think about capital expenditures, we never want to put money to work in something that doesn't have an immediate revenue generation uh, impact. And unfortunately, structured parking is one of those things that unless the day one developer does it, it's very hard to get your money back on that type of um, outlay. So your options are fairly limited, frankly. I mean, um, you could buy contiguous raw land, try to cut a deal with um, one of the things that we have been seeing that um, Amazon, um, and uh, Simon Properties is disgusting is uh, being able to use some of that uh, dead parking um, in a retail strip or a mall area um, to service office is a possibility. Or we've seen some landlords or um, employers get pretty creative with incentives to get people to take the bus, to bike, to carpool. Obviously, in a post-COVID world, those things are even more challenging, in my opinion. So. Unfortunately, your parking ratio, you've got a, you've, it's like your basis when you buy the building, you can never really escape it. And that's where you have to be very careful that if the previous landlord had specific parking arrangements with specific users, that's a very slippery slope. And so we, we try to avoid making any kind of concessions or deals to specific tenants about how many spaces they get or where those spaces are located because it becomes almost like an HR issue and it's very hard to navigate. So I think parking ratios are important just to recognize on the front end that you want to be, in my opinion, probably in that four to five per thousand range. 
Now, I know, you know, obviously a lot of the Main Street investors that have been participating in syndications have been chasing multifamily quite a bit in the last few years. But I know from speaking to other investors, office retail was showing a higher cash on cash and so forth. How do investors these days now get interested in office space when the news is telling them that everyone's going to be working remotely? Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I think it's important to make a distinction between working from home and working remotely. And pre-COVID, 4% of the workforce worked remotely. Clearly, post-COVID, that's going to be more than 4%. But I think this concept that everyone's going to work from home forever is simply just misguided and is going to be very hard to implement if you want to retain some kind of corporate culture. If you're in a company that's growing or you're onboarding new employees, I can't really fathom doing that on a purely work from home basis. Now, I could certainly envision a world where people rotate through and maybe work from home uh, two days a week. But the majority of um, people that I've talked to anecdotally and a lot of the reports you've seen out there in terms of um, data coming out on the surveys, you know, people do want to get back to the office, but just maybe not as much as they had been previously. Um, frankly, a lot of people are working more than, than they were pre-COVID at home. And I think it's going to be very hard to be able to kind of improve your own standing within your company if you're purely doing it from home. So when, when people are looking at doing an office investment, if you're just a, an individual or a family and you're contemplating coming in on a direct deal, I think it's important to understand more on the MSA level, kind of what's happening within that market itself, right? Because it's very different to do an office deal in Austin today than it is to do a deal on Wall Street in New York. Because fundamentally, office, much like multifamily and single family, it's all about job growth, wage growth, and population growth. And so that's where the demographics are huge. And that's why we believe in these secondary markets, especially in tax and business-friendly jurisdictions, because demographics matter when you're looking at those long-term trends. And especially for an office deal, unlike some multifamily deals that you can get in and out of, it's a two or three-year value-add play, these are long-term holds, right? The right way to do office is to cash flow it heavily, potentially refinance it. But I think it's very hard to do deep value add in today's environment in the office sector. So it's going to be a seven to 10 year hold because ideally you want to sell that property when you've backfilled a tenant that leaves or you've renewed a tenant that expires. But these lease obligations are anywhere from five to seven to 10 years. And so you really need to take a step back and think, okay, long-term, do I like the prospects of Nashville? Do I like the prospects of Kansas City, et cetera? Whereas um, I think sometimes when you're looking at multifamily, you can be a little bit more, not short-sighted, but you can look at things on a one to two to three year incremental window because you're raising rates every 30 days, um, at least hypothetically, right? Yeah. Office is a much longer term hold. No, that's, that's good insight. And what do you think, uh, do you think larger corporations are going to have, we'll call them satellite offices or just areas in all these different co-working spaces, maybe for their local employees to be able to work out of instead of having a headquarter in a city? Yeah. With the caveat that, I mean, who knows what's going to happen, right? I don't have the crystal ball. Um, and I think we all suffer from recency bias where we think, well, we've been living like this for the last three or six months. This is going to be the way we live for the next three or six years. And it's clearly not going to be the case. Um, in terms of office usage, um, from a corporate level, I think it'll be similar to 9-11 in 2008, where people realize, okay, 
offices uh, or leases are probably one of my higher fixed costs. And maybe I can operate on a leaner basis with, with removing some of that higher fixed cost. And so I could see a hub and spoke model make a lot of sense for a lot of these big corporate user profiles where maybe the mothership is still in New York or San Francisco, but they have secondary support offices spread across 10 different marketplaces, places like Nashville, Denver, et cetera, depending on regionally, um, because it's just going to be a, a, a more efficient you know, use of capital for a lot of these um, these employers. So I could certainly see that happening. And frankly, you know, if the employee base wants to live in a, you know, leafy suburb, you know, you want to accommodate them because even though we are in a very difficult time in terms of um, the economy, obtaining and retaining human capital is still going to be the biggest challenge facing these employers. And so you're going to want to make your employee base, you know, happy and if they've realized they don't need to commute three hours a day to get into the city to be productive, you know, you're going to accommodate them. So that's where I think, you know, if you look at the actual statements that Facebook and Twitter and some of these other groups are saying, it's not work from home forever, it's work remotely. So it's a shift into that hub and spoke model. And I think that that's where you're going to see the trend continue to go. It's going to be interesting looking back in five years, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, with the caveat that, I, I certainly don't know, but this is kind of our investment thesis playing out in front of us. And a lot of this, frankly, is just COVID um, exacerbating or accelerating trends that were already taking place over the last three to five years. So on all your new acquisitions, what are some things that have worked for you over the years when it comes to raising capital? Yeah, so um, I think a big mistake a lot of entrepreneurs and first-time syndicators make is you know, they find this beautiful, shiny object and they have this great deal and, and they love it. Um, and they just go out there and they tell everybody about it. It should work in the reverse way, right? I mean, you should go to your organic connections, folks that are in your network that will take your meeting, that will take your call, that will listen to your pitch. And instead of just showing them what you have, you should ask them what they want. So you should reverse engineer your product, your offering and your investor experience to achieve the pain points that your you know, logical investor base has. And that's where once I started realizing, okay, well, I can shift the type of investments I'm making to really hit the pain points that my investor base makes, it became a much easier conversation because instead of coming out of the box and talking about my resume or how great this deal is, you know, all the investor wants to know is how can you solve my problem, right? I mean, you're delivering a product and experience to a marketplace. So I think you're much better served by actually listening to the marketplace and what they want and how they want to be treated and then just delivering what you can to address those issues. It's a much smoother way to do it and it'll be much more efficient with your time and energy. So do you guys have software in place that helps with the capital raise? Yeah, so um, we use Juniper Square, which is a, a 24-7, 365 investor portal where an investor can can go on, you know, remotely or on their laptop, et cetera. And they can see their capital accounts, historical financials, historical quarterly updates, um, K1s, et cetera. But it also acts as a CRM. So it, it helps manage kind of all the new contacts that we make, all the relationships that we're making. And we actually just used it for a capital raise in June. And it was terrific, obviously, because I had people, you know, I was in Nashville and I had folks in San Antonio, Memphis, Charleston, uh, Southern Illinois, just my whole team was scattered because they had been, they were in lockdown. 
and it really did make things much, much easier. And frankly, made sure that we didn't drop any balls because it's very difficult to do. We raised eight and a half million dollars. Obviously, that's a lot of moving pieces to handle um, when you're not in the office and you can kind of meet and coordinate directly. And so it was it was a huge benefit for us to be able to use Juniper um, for that raise. And how long did it take you to establish a uh, investor base that large? Uh, it's a work in progress. I've been doing this for ten years now. So um, you know, today we. We have, um, you know, a great network of, of folks, but um, you know, it it's been it's been work for sure. Uh, I started doing this in 2010, so I guess 12 years now. And what are some mistakes along the way that you made that you know people can definitely learn from? <laughs> yeah, so I, I think you know one of the biggest mistakes I made was really focus on the transactions and the deals as opposed to how to manage and service our investors after the deal closes, because there's two very different components in our business. If you're syndicating capital, there's the deals themselves, right? The actual real estate that you're acquiring and the investment thesis behind that real estate. And that's obviously vitally important, but at the same time, you are starting and running a small business because there's a whole lot that goes into sourcing, closing, managing, and divesting the acquisition or the real estate um, beyond just the, the deal itself. And so one of the biggest mistakes was I did not put enough resources, either time, energy, or money into investor relations, into marketing, into communication, or into business development. And it really inhibited my ability to scale the business efficiently. And so I had to go back and you know, take everything down the studs and rebuild everything. I hired a controller who's a CPA with a tax background. I hired a business development uh, person in-house. I hired a marketing consultant to help with our communication. And obviously onboarding Juniper Square, midstream putting on that many people and that many deals was horrendously painful and, and a lot of heartburn but ultimately was huge in terms of our ability to continue to grow the company. So I think those are the big key takeaways is the deals have to make sense, but you also understand that you need all the back office and infrastructure in place in order to manage the investors um, and have things, you know, automated so that people are getting all the information that, that they, they should be getting. And since I've done that, it's been terrific. And we've gotten a lot of really positive feedback from our investors, but um, it was certainly a painful call it two years while I was going through that adjustment. Is that just a lot of investor calls, emails and text messages wondering what's going on? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when, when the deals are working and you're seeing the deals every day and you're talking to the asset managers and you're visiting the properties and you can see that, you know, the plan is working, that's great for you. But unless you're communicating that and being transparent to your investors, their mindset is, oh my gosh, the deals are going poorly. Management team doesn't know what they're doing. Their minds are going to go to the worst possible place. That's just human nature. And so now we have things set so that they get monthly financial statements. We do very in-depth quarterly analysis that we rely heavily on our local property manager and leasing brokerage relationships. And we do a lot for the content provision side. So we do webinars and blogs and thought pieces just to help be a resource for our investor base. And once we started getting all that machinery up and running, the feedback's been terrific. And ultimately, you know, I think 
your investors will continue to invest with you, obviously, if you treat them right, but they'll also make organic introductions and referrals, which is really a great way to grow the investor base as opposed to just pick up the phone and make a bunch of cold calls. So, yeah, I mean, those are all the big mistakes that we made that we tried to address. No, I mean, once the once you provide great service and the word gets out and you have organic growth and it becomes a lot easier to raise capital. Yeah. What, uh, you know, what other software are you using outside of Juniper Square that helps with the business? Yeah, so we use Asana, which is um, an organizational um, online uh, platform to make sure that the cadence of our blog pieces, webinars, quarterly updates, monthly financials, that everything is kind of tracking smoothly. And then we use Slack increasingly uh, just because email can be overwhelming and it's a great tool for us to be able to to communicate with each other in real time and make sure that everyone's worked through their respective to-do lists. Um, so those are the big ones for us. It's been Juniper, Slack, and Asana. And, and I think <laughs> I finally started listening to my marketing consultant who was telling me to use these things pre-COVID, but kind of had to f- force me to use them being in quarantine. But it's, it's been incredible in terms of uh, efficiently organizing my life. And honestly, one of the biggest things for me has been Calendly just to be able to organize phone calls or meetings um, without having to go back and forth, you know, 20 iterations on the email chain. Well, what about Monday at 12 o'clock? What about Tuesday at one o'clock? Especially as I'm dealing with multiple time zones and we have some international um, investors. Um, Calendly has been just a huge life hack for me personally. So as more technology comes out and obviously makes everything easier for all the operators, uh, do you think that makes that more uh, easier for other people to get in the game, more competition and uh, allow smaller operators to acquire more assets with a lean team? I hope so. Um, I certainly hope that, you know, I think for some operators or sponsors that are just getting into the business, it can be overwhelming and they think it can be really expensive. Um, but, you know, ultimately a lot of these aren't terribly expensive and, um, you know, I hope that it will allow some smaller niche managers to be able to get in because obviously it is such a capital intensive business and there's already this huge bifurcation between kind of the niche operators like ourselves and then these huge funds that just have incredible amount of AUM and resources under their, under their belts. But I do believe that AI and machine learning and some of these things are really going to drive down the cost associated with a lot of these tools. Um, and so I hope it becomes more efficient and, and frankly, a little bit more, you know, competitive, which I think makes all of us better managers ultimately. So you think the operating costs or expense ratio will, you know, go down over the next 10 years with technology? I do. I do. I mean, I think if you look at what CBRE and Cushman and, and all these groups are doing now, um, they're all trying to get into the, what's what we refer to as kind of the prop tech dam, um, where real estate was really stuck in the dark ages for the last 50 years, 25 years, but now it's adopting a lot of these um, tools. And um, I do think it'll, it'll make the cost of operating much less expensive. Yeah, you could think of the leasing, you know, the debt. I mean, you could think of so much you could automate. And then it just comes down to who the heck is still gonna do the repairs and the capital improvements. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, if you, you know, I talked to you, I talk to young people who want to get in the business, you know, if they want to be a third party vendor or service provider. And uh, to your point, you know, in five or 10 years, I don't see how an appraiser actually gets on a plane and goes, walks the asset any longer. I mean, considering the amount of data that you can draw down on 
through CoStar and LoopNet and CBRE, et cetera. I mean, I think it's just going to be a bot that runs an analysis and sees if the appraisal is going to be within the range of your price point by utilizing all the data there. Same with, with, you know, with lease negotiations. Now there's some great machine learning options that you can just pull out the three or four terms that you want to negotiate and fight over. And you can just have at it as opposed to swapping red lines back and forth. Um, same on the debt side, to your point. I mean, the fact that some broker's got a connection or a relationship with a life company, I think that's all going to go away in the next five or 10 years and just going to be an open marketplace type setup where you submit it into the, you know, onto the platform and then you just get kind of real-time competitive bids from the other side. And it's going to be a much more efficient marketplace. I know somebody that uh, out of Florida who's currently working on a application, a drone based application. So you can order, you know, place an order and someone locally goes out and, and flies all around the property and brings back all the images back into the app. And you basically, you know, you can see everything almost in real time within hours later. So, you know, you know, between all that technology, yeah, I mean, there's not going to be much left. And that's going to be interesting to be able to get almost live footage. So uh, going into the suburban uh, office space, what, uh, you know, what are the size companies that you have that are leasing the space? Yeah, so um, when, we, when we talk about kind of suburban office, I think it's important. If you look at secondary markets, which are million plus MSA, but outside the traditional top 10 gateway cities, um, so places like Nashville where I live, Kansas City, Cincinnati, Richmond, places we've been active in recently, um, you know, the, the typically the economic drivers there are what we call eds and meds. So government, education, healthcare, and some form of kind of uh, STEM oriented service, uh, we think are counter cyclical and resilient industries that are going to do well. And so far, you know, we've been lucky. We've had about 93% rent collection across our portfolio. And so the majority of our um, office users have, have maintained their business. Obviously, we've had a couple of issues across uh, the portfolio with people that have exposure to, to, you know, to COVID-impacted industries. But our usual um, tenant profile would be a professional or financial services regional uh, company. So not necessarily credit rated, but not just a one-off mom and pop. I think our average user size is probably somewhere in that 5,000 square feet range. And they're usually doing, you know, a typical five to seven year lease term. Um, employee count, it really it is uh, dramatically different depending on the industry, because if you're a tech programmer versus, um, you know, a law firm or a wealth management firm, it's going to be very different from a user profile. But typically our employee base reflects the underlying economic uh, drivers of that, of that market. And so it's usually professional financial services um, somewhere in that kind of healthcare or uh, finance world. Do you see a lot of, do you think there's going to be a lot of distressed or value add office space that will come up over the next 12, 24 months? Or what are you kind of predicting out in the marketplace? Yeah, I think what you'll see is um, because so much of the office sector is financed with CMBS debt and those special servicers are just slammed right now dealing with hotels and retail. So I think it's going to be really Q4, more likely Q1, until you see any distressed office coming on the marketplace, just because it takes time to work its way through that 
that system and that ecosystem because it's it's fairly complex. I do think you probably will see some. I think more likely in the short term, all these groups that have raised opportunistic value add funds, they're going to have to go out on the risk spectrum and they're going to have to start creating their own deals because they, they're going to get nervous that they can't find any deal flow and their LP is going to be asking, hey, you raise all this money, where are the opportunities? And so I think you're going to start see some of these private equity groups get very aggressive, probably come downstream on their deal size, go outside the typical risk spectrum that they would normally, um, just to kind of cram some deals in before the true deal flow comes in, in Q1. But honestly, if a CARES Act 2.0 comes and um, lenders continue to be this accommodative and regulators are this accommodative, you just might not see you know, the deal flow that people are anticipating. I get a lot of calls from my family offices saying, hey, you know, you should be seeing screaming out deals like 08. But it's just not the case. They're just not there yet. Um, you know, I'm sure hotel, you can probably pick up some really good discount deals right now, but you probably need to be a cash buyer and you probably need to be a 25 year plus time horizon type of owner, in my opinion. Um, Cause it's going to be very capital intensive and you're going to have to hold that for a while. So your carrying costs are going to be high. With all the moratoriums, it is hard to say what is going to happen. Uh, you know, I'm even seeing on the debt side, mortgage space, uh, you know, everything's kind of put on hold, foreclosures are put on hold. So it'll be interesting, uh, you know, and at the other point is sometimes the going against the herd is when you got so many people saying there's going to be something, it, it sometimes doesn't go that way, right? Yeah, yeah and, and it's hard because it, it's such a volatile time, you know, politically and financially that I think it can be paralyzing in some respects. But what I keep trying to reinforce my investor base as well as my own family is listen, you know, it's never going to be the perfect deal. It's never going to be the exact right time to deploy capital, but sitting on cash, given what's going on on a macro level is not the answer because inflation is coming and where yields are today and where your money market is today and where our taxes are going to go. Cause I think regardless of who wins taxes are going to go up to pay for all of this activity you know, you're being taxed on your cash hold today. So you need to put it in some kind of income oriented, long duration asset that has some nice tax benefits, but that can have, you know, long-term inflationary hedges as well. And so I think it's important maybe if you had an asset allocation, you were looking to get out the door this calendar year, you probably haven't been able to deploy it all. Maybe take a percent of it and just start doing, you know, some direct co-investment deals just to get some money out the door because I don't think there's ever going to be this perfect opportunity. And again, the Fed and Congress are doing everything in their power to signal to you they don't want you to hold on to cash. And, <laughs> and you, they cannot, want you, you cannot fight the Fed. And so, you know, maybe don't go all in on one deal and spread it around a little bit more. But, you know, and I know it's self-serving for me to say this, but holding on to cash is not the answer right now. And I think the market, it might have some more runway to go up, but I think there's certainly volatility on the horizon. I agree. So all the, for the, all the people that want to get, you know, invest in office space, what are the tax benefits? Yeah. So I think it's really important um, if previously you invested in REITs, which is a terrible uh, proxy for direct real estate ownership, in my opinion, um, just a horrible synthetic product for a whole host of reasons or you are traditionally investing in some of these larger funds where a lot of the limited partners or investors are non-taxable pension plans or endowments. Um, 
it's really important to talk to your GP and sponsor about what they do on the tax side, which is why we brought a CPA with a public accounting tax background in-house. So um, 100% bonus depreciation of the new Trump Tax Act is incredibly powerful. Characterizing the initial distributions as a return of capital and not having them be subject to uh, ordinary income tax, hugely powerful. Doing cost segregation analysis um, is you know, something that every GP and sponsor should be doing on every single deal that they take down. And when you combine all those things together, every deal is a little bit different, um, but you should be achieving either a very minimal taxable income or frankly, a tax loss for the first one, two or three years that you hold a building. Now, a lot of that will be recaptured on the back end, which people don't want to talk about, but it's just the way it is. But in terms of your actual, if you're getting 8% cash flows annually, plus you're able to offset gains elsewhere with a loss in your K-1, for a taxable household, that, that's a huge, powerful tool that you should be leveraging 100%. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of sponsors and GPs just aren't. So, and then what happens at, you're saying at the back end, they got to recapture that and pay tax. And for LP, most deals, they can't do a 1031. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm not a CPA. I'm not giving you tax advice, but typically um, the way this works is, you know, you're, you're, you're taking that depreciation schedule. That's usually, what is it? 22 and a half years. Um, and you're, you're accelerating it into the first one or two years of the lifetime ownership of that property. And so you're taking all those benefits and you're cramming them into the first, you know, few, few years of your direct real estate ownership in that asset. When you sell that asset, the IRS is going to see that you did accelerated depreciation on the property and they're going to recapture that on a tax basis upon sale. But again, um, if you hold the asset for 10 plus years and you're able to get those, um, those savings on the front end, um, you know, there's it's not much you can do about it on the recapture side, but at least you could be leveraging it for the first few years of ownership. That's good. And you guys take uh, IRA investors? Yeah. So people invest through various uh, entities with us, trusts, LLCs, direct ownership, uh, personally, or through their IRA. Yeah. And IRA is a great product for some people, not for all. Um, you don't get the full tax benefits when you invest through your IRA. But, um, you know, there's, I think the latest figure I read was something like $12 billion of um, funds held in IRA in America today. And I think less than two or 3% has exposure to alternatives. So a lot of people don't realize they don't just need to keep doubling down to the S&P 500 or some spider ETF, that they can do some direct ownership um, direct real estate alternative investing through it. And that can be very powerful because it's not out of pocket cash, right? And depending on where you are in life, if you have a large IRA setup, um, it can provide some really nice diversification for you. Yeah. Retirement accounts will become even more important if tax rates go up, right? <laughs> yeah. And you know, um, the private equity groups are not stupid and they have huge lobbying power. And now your 401k is getting exposure to a lot of these larger private equity real estate groups. So if nothing else, um, check out our website and see some of the webinars we've done on um, alternative investing through your IRA, because frankly, you're probably already getting exposure and you might not even know about it. So you should at least educate yourself about what the benefits um, and some of the risks are. Uh, have you guys worked with family offices or wealth management firms at all? We have. We have a great family office network um, of, you know, um, 
across the US and some international. And I'd say that's probably 50% of our investor base on a dollar basis, our family offices that are looking for direct real estate opportunities um, and not necessarily through a fund. And then we've got um, a pretty good network of what I call independent RIAs or multifamily offices where you know these are boutique wealth management firms for the benefit of a handful of families. And um, you know they can, they typically have uh, a lot of appetite for, for alternatives, uh, but don't necessarily want to participate in funds. And so we're a good fit for a lot of those groups. Yeah. So do they come in as like a co-GP with, L, with the LP capital stack too? No, typically they're acting as an LP. Um, and it just depends on how the IRAs, uh, the RAA is set up. So sometimes they'll have an internal fund of funds where they've already, um, you know, talked to their, uh, clients and their families and they've said, Hey, we're going to do core plus real estate. Um, we're going to raise X amount of money and we're going to do X amount of deals often. So sometimes that group will, will invest in one of my, one of my opportunities through one of their internal fund of funds. Sometimes they'll just pass the hat and they'll say, Hey, I know a family that would be a great fit for this. You should participate. So it really just depends on how the internal structure of the RIA is. For a syndicator out there that's you know looking to raise capital for deals, how do they go about establishing relationships with family offices? Yeah, so it's become this hot button term um, where I think a lot of people throw it out there uh, without fully understanding kind of what it means or was it, what it doesn't mean. And the the piece of advice I'd give is, you know, families, uh, family offices are just like other families, like my own family. Um, they're all different. Right. So it, it comes down to that personal relationship you have with the group. And again, understanding what their um, their goals are, their pain points are and trying to help them. I think um, if you if you have the label on you of a family office, oftentimes you just get pitched everything under the sun and it can be very difficult to just say no to everything. And so there's a lot of fatigue there. But um, so the, the biggest kind of point I would say is, you know, just try to be a resource for them because if you know they may not necessarily want to do real estate they may be over allocated to real estate or they may just not like the product type that you have but if they are a true family office they're looking to deploy capital into alternatives and they want um, to expand their network so offering up something like hey could i make some introductions i've got a friend who's in the healthcare world or i know somebody who's in the vc tech world um, and just trying to kind of build their relationship that way I think is the most useful way because it's not a zero sum game. You're not a wealth manager. You're not trying to get all their AUM. Um, you're just trying to establish this relationship with them on the investor level. And so offering up ways that you could be a resource for them and then just knowing that it's going to take one, two, three, four or five years before they participate in an offering, you just have to be patient. So that means being thoughtfully persistent, which that's more art than science, but, um, you know, you can't just come out, come out the gate and say, hey, here's my deck. Let's talk. That's not going to work. And do you seek these out through uh, family office networks or LinkedIn or conferences? Yeah. I mean, my wife's family has a single family office. So I kind of understand um, you know, the pain points that we have um, in meeting new managers and, and sourcing opportunities and vetting opportunities and talking to sponsors. So um, I obviously know some folks just from my own uh, relationships with, with my wife's family. But yeah, I mean, pre-COVID, I was very active on the next-gen um, circuit, which, you know, next-gen is a very flexible term. It can be anywhere from 
65 to 25, but generally speaking around 40 years old. And just again, um, being a speaker, being very open and transparent about our own family's challenges and issues that we faced. Um, and, you know, oftentimes being a member of a, a family office, um, you know, it, it's kind of difficult to say this um, uh, without coming across the wrong way, but, you know, they have the same problems and issues that other individuals and families have. They just have more zeros behind their, their household budget. And I don't say that in a cavalier sense, but, you know, they have problems just like everyone else, but oftentimes they don't have a great uh, network of people that they can talk to that are going to be empathetic for, to them. Um, and so for me, I love just being helpful to people and building that karma. And, you know, if you're interested in learning more about philanthropy or, you know, experiential uh, retail opportunities or healthcare tech, or just how to talk about doing the prenup conversation with the new son-in-law, I've just tried to build that network up. Um, and it's been hugely beneficial for me, but it does take time. Conferences, I think can be really tricky. The pay to play thing, um, I think can, can be a rabbit hole that you don't want to go down to. And oftentimes, frankly, in the family office world, it's really hard to understand who's on the sell side and who's on the buy side. Cause there's certainly a lot of private equity groups out there that are, you know, pretending to be a family office where they're really not. Um, and so, as, as my wife would say, clear is kind. And so I always try to be very transparent and clear about who I am, what I do, um, and how I want to be helpful to people. But um, there's certainly a lot of games that get played in that world. So I'd be cautious about how much time you spend there. And again, on LinkedIn, people can throw up a profile and say anything they want. Um, yeah. And at the end of the day, it comes down to you know who you really are and who you really know. And, and that just takes time. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's well put. And what... Uh you know, what is maybe one factor that allows, you know, you to build the most trust with a family office? Track record, network. Um, you know, I've got, I, I think just being present for people. And again, I keep kind of hammering this home, but just being a resource for them and being helpful and being top of mind, because eventually they're probably going to want to learn about real estate investing. But you have to understand from the family's perspective, they're dealing, they're a small company basically, right? So it's for the benefit of their own um, relatives, but they're dealing with attorneys, trust in the state, intergenerational issues. Um, you know, they're, they're always kind of, well, not always, but oftentimes they're kind of going from risk on to risk off, depending on where they are from a transition, generational transitional standpoint. Um, so it, it just takes, I'm not doing a great job of answering this question, unfortunately, but um, I, I think it just takes a very patient um, mindset of, again, just trying to be helpful to people. And, um, you know, once you start kind of having a handful of families participate and you do everything that you said you're going to do, um, you know, they can open up their Rolodex and make some really powerful introductions for you. Um, but again, you just need to be patient and, and thoughtful. Yeah, I think that's a great takeaway for everybody listening is definitely be patient. I mean, even myself, right? I may uh, meet some people, establish a relationship and kind of follow them or get to know them and not do any business for maybe at least six to 12 months just to know that they're legitimate and real and I, I would like to do business with them. Yeah, and I think being able to, I always kind of offer up, hey, I'd love to um, send you uh, an investor referral and, you know, 
um, just have them speak for me is more powerful than me pitching you on what I can or can't do. Um, and I always give leeway to those. I always check first to make sure they're comfortable with me allowing them to be a, to be a reference. But I always try to tell those reference points, Hey, tell them everything. Don't just tell them the, the great stuff about me. Talk about some of the challenges, talk about some of the places that I need to improve and just speak your mind and be open. Um, and I think that's one of the more useful things is not try to, you know, hide the ball or anything like that. Don't play games again, just be, just be transparent and just keep working hard, which I know is a little bit cliche, but, um, you know, if you really want to build those bigger family office relationships, oftentimes they are truly institutional entities that have, uh, investment committees, they have credit committees, they have processes. Um, and those things don't happen overnight. That's great. Well, I'm going to leave off here with one last question. What is the biggest takeaway for our listeners that you can provide from your experience in investing your capital, growing your wealth and minimizing your tax bill? Yeah, I think it's the realization that no matter where you deploy your capital or how you look at investment opportunities, I try to break things down that, listen, we're dealing with anywhere from a two or 3% inflation rate annual. Even though you may not see it in the news, you can feel it if you're paying for private tuition or you're in the residential market like you are. Um, you can kind of feel that inflation and it's real and it's very hard to combat. So you've got two or 3% and then your household spend rate or your, your overhead, your operating expenses, whatever you want to put on it, it's probably anywhere from three to 5%. And just what it costs to maintain your quality of life and your cost of living and et cetera. So now you're looking at anywhere from seven to 8% kind of annual charge to you. And then probably your family is growing exponentially. Like I have two children. They're probably going to have two children. And within my kind of three generation lifespan, that's a lot of mouths to feed. So if you're thinking about how to maintain your quality of life um, across multiple generations for long term, it's very hard to hit an annualized north of 8% return in the marketplace, like stock market, fixed income, et cetera. And so alternatives are, are one of the few ways that you can actually achieve that. And so that's how I would go into some of these investment decisions is solving for that, frankly, that eight to 10% average uh, return that you need to make on your investments, which is becoming increasingly hard in the public markets. That, that's great. Thank you for that. If people want to get note, know you or reach out to you what's the best way to get a hold of you yeah i'm super active on linkedin so if you look me up um and shoot me a direct message i'll be happy to uh, set up a time and, and talk to you um or you can go to the website excelsiorgp.com you can sign up for our newsletters or if you're interested in seeing our deal flow um you can follow with a follow up with us there all right brian thank you for coming on the show today yeah thanks joe this is a lot of fun thank you for having me Thanks for listening to The Joe Roberts Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Joe Roberts Show.